This morning, we're going to continue in our series in Luke. So we've taken a couple weeks off. We had uh, Dave Gudgel here who was storyboarding with us, and then uh, last week, Adam Peacock uh, dealing with the Oaks of Righteousness. And I want us just for a moment to think about kind of our culture's scriptures that our culture will often take Bible verses and they will say them and they will share them out loud and then they twist them and try to use them against often Christians, but then Christians often become confused by them as well. Two of those statements are simply this. One is, God is love. And what they mean by that, in essence, is, listen, don't come and talk to me about things because I and what I am doing is loving. Forgetting that if God is love, God is the definer of that love. Probably the second most popular statement, and one that is probably more often quoted than simply that, is do not judge. And that's a passage that is grossly taken out of context by those in our culture, but also those within our church, within the corporate church, the large church C. There are passages that are used, both of which are used as opportunities to push away any sense of accountability or any sense of dealing with sin in a person's life. And so think about that. We hear that, hey, somebody says something that's sinful, don't judge me. Or let me remain in sin here. Well, God is love and all I'm doing is loving someone else. And so what happens with those passages is really what they're requesting for is a tolerance of unrighteousness. That's how our culture takes those two passages. Well, this morning, we're going to actually deal with both. We're going to deal with what it really means to love as Christ loves, what his call is for our love towards the world and what his call is for our love towards one another. And so let's go ahead. We're going to dive right into the text this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, the last part of Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 49. Let's go ahead and stand as we read the word together this morning. And this is what it says. It says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. 
Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who's built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Father, this morning as we look at your word, we pray that you would show us what it really means to love as Christ loves. We pray, Father, that we would embrace the way that you would have us love one another. Not according to our flesh, but according to you. Lord God, I pray this morning that you would bind any work of the enemy that looks to come to distract or dissuade or discourage. I pray that it be your spirit who moves powerfully and God teaches and convicts and encourages and rebukes where needed God our own hearts. And Lord, as your word says, all who hear, so may God, we have ears to hear this morning. May we hear what you are speaking to us. Lord God, move me to the back and you move to the front. And may your word come forth with power this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. I'd ask this morning that as I'm preaching that you would be praying for me. My just have walking through this passage this week have just experienced some elements of different what I would call spiritual warfare attack. And even now, wrestling through an ocular migraine. So if I look at you a little bit funny, but part of that is just the aspect of I believe that this is what God has for us as the body of Christ. And the truth is, is that the ministry of Christ's likeness directs us to love others with God's heart. That's the simplicity of this passage, that the ministry of Christ's likeness directs us to love others with God's heart. 
Christ directs love. That's what he's calling us to. Christ directs love. The ministry of Christ's likeness directs us to love others with God's heart. Now, Jesus has just selected 12 men from among his disciples to be his apostles. And as we saw a few weeks ago, a disciple was just simply one who follows or a follower of Jesus. Now, rather than sending them out immediately, verse 17 tells us that he came down with the apostles and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, his followers, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. And he begins training them up. First, he heals those that are demon-possessed. Then those who are with him begin to reach out. They want to touch his power so that they might be healed. And then we're told that Jesus begins to lift his eyes towards his disciples. That this sermon that he gives, some call it the Sermon on the Plain. It's really, I think, the Sermon on the Plateau. It is the Sermon on the Mount. That he finds a flat spot on the mountain and he begins to proclaim this message to them. He begins to teach them what he is like, but more importantly, what it is like to be a disciple. And to be a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus, is to be the ministry of Christ-likeness, that we are to become like Christ. We are to walk with him, and we are to be like him. Because Christ being in us, we are then to carry out and display him to the world. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that in us they might see him. And so it is the process of discipleship that Jesus is doing here. It's the, the ministry of Christ-likeness. And so after sharing that the blessed life finds dependence and joy in Jesus rather than in the world, and that was where we saw a few weeks ago he went through the different statements of blessing and the statements of woe. That if you looked at the life of those who are blessed, if we measured it against what the world says is blessed, we would say, oh, they're not blessed. But that Jesus' kingdom, his economy, is radically different than the world. And so he's just shown them that the blessed life finds dependence and joy in Jesus rather than in the world. And he calls his followers then to love differently than the world and to love as God has loved us. That's his calling here. And so he picks up here in verse 27 through 36. And he says, but I say to you who hear. This is a message for the believer, for the follower of Christ. He's actually saying, if you can't hear this message, you may not know me. It's one of the reasons that throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, we're told that all of the law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the only way that you can love your neighbor as yourself is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so he says here, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And so Christ-like love is marked by two things. The first is by loving our enemies. Christ-like love begins and is marked by loving our enemies. We too were once enemies of God. 
and yet God loved us. We were an enemy of Jesus, and Jesus loves us. And then it says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Well, who are our enemies then? He says, who are we supposed to love? Those who hate you those who curse you, those who abuse you, those who harm you, and those who take from you. Now, if we're honest, that first one sometimes, those who hate us, may not bother us all that much. Those who curse you generally creates a defensiveness, does it not? Those who abuse you, you want to punch in the face. You want to fight your way out. Those who harm, you want them to feel your pain. And those who take, all you want is justice. And yet God says, love them. Love them. So how are we to love them? Well, he says, he says, do good. Do good to those who hate you. Now, I... I have to be honest, I think as followers of Christ, we live in a world where our world dictates to us and we allow it to dictate to us who our enemies really are. And it dictates to us our response to those enemies. We live in a culture today where politics are modern religion. It is what people seek to find their hope in. Whatever you seek to find your hope in is your religion. Maybe yourself, it may be the world, it may be the government. But anything that we seek to find our hope in other than Jesus is our religion. It is what we are following. And it's why when we look at people, do we actually love those who differ from us the way that Christ has called us to? Or do we allow our culture to determine who our enemies are? All of us would say we've never lived in a world or a country that's more divided than it is today. All you have to do is to hear the new studies that said people will marry people from opposite religions, but they will not marry people from opposite political parties. In 1990, a study was done that actually said that people would marry one another from different political parties, but they would not marry somebody from different backgrounds of faith. I would say that's actually biblical. You want to marry somebody that you're equally yoked to. Today, when they ran this study in 2022, the same study said that people would marry people from differing religious backgrounds, but not marry people from differing political parties. What's a religion? Where are they finding their hope? Where is it safe to disagree? Oh, we can disagree about eternity, 
but God forbid we disagree about how our taxes are handled. Right? Or whatever. The reality is, is that today we see a different religion. And as a result of that, we see people and consider people of, who are enemies that are never our enemies. Political opposition should not lead us to see people as our enemies. Shouldn't. But if it does, the scripture informs us how we are to respond, and that is with love towards them, that we are to do good towards them, even if they are not doing good towards us. Those who curse us, we are to bless. How do we love then? We, we love by doing good. We, we love by blessing people, those who curse us. We love by praying for those people that abuse us. I don't know about you guys, but when you feel abused or harmed, it's nice to think about getting revenge, isn't it? Many of you know that last year my sister-in-law's husband was murdered. And next week we were supposed to be at a trial, but just last week they did a continuance, so the trial will not occur until the end of April. But in watching with my sister-in-law through this, one of the things that I have seen is this unique tension that's there. There needs to be justice, but I want him to see Jesus. He needs Jesus. And he's going to get justice. And it's okay to expect that he experienced justice in this world, but she doesn't need to be the exactor of that justice. That she allows for him to experience the consequence of his actions, justice, But her disposition in her heart is that while he experiences justice, that through her, Jesus might be seen. Those who abuse and harm us, God has called us to pray for. When we suffer wrong, he's called us to pray for them. But then he also says here that there are times that we are to suffer wrong. Right? Notice what it says. It says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now what God is not saying here is that we stand by and just let ourselves become a punching bag. But too often, our first response is don't become a punching bag. When in fact, our heart's disposition should be, I will suffer wrong for the sake of Jesus. And to love you, I will suffer wrong. I will experience what is unfair so that you might see Christ. And we are to give to those who take away. Those who take from us, he says, give. Let it go. Now again, we must still use discernment. 
This is not a legal duty, but an attitude of the heart. In fact, Jesus, after being struck by one of the officers for his response to the high priest's questioning following his arrest, says, if what I said to you is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And it causes the officer to stop dead in his tracks. Yeah, Jesus turned the cheek the first time, but he used discernment there. Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11, calls us to use discernment. When we love, it requires discernment. When we're giving to the needy, it doesn't mean that every single needy person that we see that we give to randomly. But it does mean that we use discernment, that we're actively seeking him and his discernment. It does mean that when somebody hates us, that we... We don't just continue to constantly put ourselves in that situation unless we believe that that's what God's called us to, but we do respond with goodness. William Barclay points out, we cannot love our enemies as we love our nearest and dearest. To do so would be unnatural, impossible, and even wrong. But we can see to it that no matter what a man does to us, even if he insults, ill-treats, and injures us, we will seek nothing but his highest good. That's what Jesus is calling for. Seeking his highest good. So here's two helpful principles then in loving our enemies. We see the first one at the end of verse 31. It says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So do to others as you wish they will do to you. In response to them, what do you wish that they would do to you? You wish that people would do good to you, that they would pray for you, that they would suffer well with you, that they would bless you. And the principle here, and I believe the reason that Christ puts it here is because we're so minded towards the black and white, the law, that we're looking for the prescription. And he's saying, here's the heart. Do to others what you would want done to you. Treat them in that way. So don't go, well, you know what? I don't know if that quite fits curse here. Um, So let me punch them in the face, right? Um, What do you really mean, God, by harm? Like, you know, the guy's just kind of a jerk. I don't know that I would call it harmful. And so... I don't know, let me go ahead and break his window. The point is, is that he gives a principle to deal with the heart. I was talking to Sue Nystrom yesterday. We were talking about it, and this point of curse came up, and I said something about, uh, you know, I said, I can write this in cursive if you like, and she said basically, essentially, she didn't really know if something was cursive, and she didn't really know how to really know if cursive was really cursing. Um, so what we're talking about is not writing here, just so you're clear. As Sue and I were joking about yesterday, we're talking about language, which is meant to actually condemn someone. When we curse somebody, we are condemning them. That's what we're doing. 
And so when somebody curses us, when somebody condemns us, do we bless them or do we fight back? That's the posture that God wants from us. So we do to others as, as, as you would wish that they would do to you. The second principle in that then is we find in verse 35. It says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Wasn't that us at one time? We were to imitate the kindness, God's kindness to the undeserving. We're to imitate God's kindness to the undeserving. You see, this idea here of, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. When we demonstrate kindness to the undeserving, we actually reflect the very essence of God's image to others, of God's mercy to others, of God's love to others. And so when you look at it, when you hear those words and you're like, well, they're undeserving of it, here's what God's saying, be kind. Love them with kindness. Do good to them. Yes, they are undeserving, just as you were undeserving. That's what he's saying. And so loving our enemies can be summed up in those two principles, do to others as you wish they will do to you, and imitate God's kindness to the undeserving. And then Jesus, in verse 36, then he instructs his disciples to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And this provides the context for the second mark of Christ-like love. That second mark of Christ-like love, the first being loving your enemies, the second is being merciful towards one another. He shifts this. It's now being merciful towards one another. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we put into your lap, for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Now, while verse 37 and 38 is familiar to many of us, it is often misused and misunderstood. See, Jesus is giving his disciples a picture of godly mercy and unrighteous judgment. He's not saying to reject discernment and simply tolerate ongoing sin. So he's dealing with the unbeliever, my enemies, and now he's moving it more inward into the body of Christ. And we'll see that here in just a moment. As believers, we're instructed, in fact, in Zechariah 8, verses 16 through 17, to speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments, whoa, that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So what's right here? He says, render in your gates judgments that are true. Paul affirms this as well in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, when he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you or we are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. If we don't understand this principle, we actually allow things within the body of Christ that God himself does not allow. He says to deal rightfully, to judge rightfully, to judge truthfully, 
within the body of Christ. So what is he saying here when he says, judge not? What Jesus is not talking about is discerning judgment, but rather condemning judge that judgment. We know that because of the way he puts the language structure together in this passage. He says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Now, although judging and condemning are often used interchangeably, they have one significant difference. In Greek, the word for judge is the word krino, which literally means to determine a person to be guilty and liable to punishment. While the word condemn literally means to give or pronounce sentence against a person. So condemning judgment is what is being spoken of in this passage. It's a a condemnation that you are without hope. It's pronouncing judgment upon a person. So we are not to pronounce judgment. We are only to call it out and warn. God is saying that inside the body of Christ, there should be judging that's taking place, meaning we should address sin in one another's lives. We are to determine if something is sinful and if a person is walking in that unrepentant sin. Now, that doesn't mean that I run around here and look at everybody, but it does mean that when I'm in relationship with one another, that I am actually able to have sin directly addressed in my own life and me address sin in other people's lives. And it's done from a position of love. What he's not saying is, I don't get the freedom and say, oh, Robin, you're in sin today. You're going to hell. There's no forgiveness for you. Oh, you know what? You must not be a believer because you're wrestling with that sin. No, it's, hey, Robin, I, uh, I see you struggling with sin here. And I actually see this sin in your life. If you don't change that, God says this in his word about that sin. And he said that it will bring destruction upon you. But I'm willing to walk with you in it. That's an entirely different posture. And that's the kind of judgment that God does call us to. It's why we do church discipline. It's why we deal with unrepentant sin within the body, because God says for us to judge it. And so when we take this and we say, judge not, oh, you're judging me. Typically, when somebody is saying that, it's from a position of defense. They don't want to hear it, and they don't want to respond to it. They don't want to have to change as a result of it. The other way that we hide behind this word of judgment is we look at our past sin and we say people are judging us for our past sin when we're not actually hearing that actually they may not be judging us for our past sin, but they're seeing something in our present. Those statements are deflection statements. Tyler, my son, you guys know, loves sports. And in the coaching that he's received over the years, he had a coach that was unkind. Let's just put it that way. And for me, I loved coaches that were yellers and screamers. I thrived on it. And I didn't care if you cussed at me. I didn't care what you said up and down at me. It was not a big deal. And I mean that. 
And there was a healthy fear of my coach, and there was a healthy fear of failure, and I kind of liked it. But this particular coach was unique. Because this coach didn't kind of keep it out there of like, that was a bonehead play, or you could have done something different. That was dumb. He was the kind of person that would actually hit your character. You're an idiot. You're lazy. You're unintelligent. And fortunately, Tyler had not received a lot of that, but he had teammates where this coach would literally look at another player and say, you know, you really aren't the smartest guy in the room. In fact, you really are pretty stupid. It's not the best way to coach. <laughs> right? And so I asked Tyler, I said, what do you think of this guy? And his posture was this way. He said, I think he's a jerk, but I need to listen to him because I need to find out what I need to learn. The other way that we deflect this is we get more focused on how somebody says it to us instead of what they're actually saying. When somebody speaks truth into our life, seldom are we actually going to like it. And the only way that we typically are going to receive it as something that is good is because we know the person and we know that they love us. But we are quick to land on how it was done rather than on what was being said while it was being done. And that brings us then to this next piece. Because what's being called upon for us here then is something unique. It actually deals with developing a godly and loving heart. And so we need to be a people who, while we speak truth and love to other people and don't come at it with a condemning and judgmental attitude, we also need to be a people who receive correction who receive the truth. Now, before we move forward, I want us to grab this idea of what condemning judgment actually looks like. Condemning judgment is a criticalness that misses our own need for the gospel, that we too are failures apart from Jesus. It is setting human expectation for people and condemning them based upon human expectation rather than on God's expectation and grace. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, Jesus is talking here about an attitude, a mindset that is sometimes found within the church to the church's embarrassment, a mindset of contentiousness, a mindset of criticism that God does not enjoy. The basic posture that we are to have towards the world is that of charity that covers a multitude of sins, yet God has not called us to be policemen of society but to discern the difference between good and evil. And there's a time and a place for the church to exercise prophetic criticism, not only to its own members, but to the world as well. But a negative spirit we are to resist with all of our mind. We are to be a people 
who are continuously looking at the gospel of Jesus and our need for it, that we are nothing apart from him, to remind us that others are in the same exact boat. And when we are constantly critical of others, we are constantly negative. When we're looking at them and looking at how they failed us, we're missing the fact that they too are in need of Jesus in the exact same way that we are in need of Jesus' grace. And it is only by God's grace that we are able to hear his words. You see, Jesus is providing the attributes of mercy which are demonstrated by the Father. Look at that in verse 37. Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Jesus forgives us when we were unworthy of it. He overflows. He gives to us. He overflows with good measure. And boy, thank God that he was patient with us. That he judged us that he had not yet allowed us to suffer full condemnation because Jesus bore our shame. There will come a day when Jesus condemns all those who have not professed him as Lord to an eternity separated from him of eternal torment. But that day has not yet come. God has judged us. He's shown us our sin. But he has not yet condemned us. There will be a day of final condemnation for all those who do not repent and believe. But until that day, we are to love as Jesus loves. Identifying sin, but yet not bringing condemnation in finality. Do you see how when we love people and we love them well and we love them with discerning judgment, not condemning judgment, that we actually allow people to see the mercy of Christ? That you and I, apart from Jesus, are worthy of death today and God gives us greater and more breath and then ultimately he gives us life in Christ? So, how do we then develop a godly, loving heart? Well, this whole section of Scripture, I think, is often isolated from its context. And the truth is, is that he is continuing this course of thought. And he says there in verse 39 through 40, he also told them a parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? What he's speaking of here is he's speaking of the Pharisees. He's saying that Pharisees are blind and they're leading people astray and yet they don't see it. And if you'll follow the blind Pharisees, you will go into a pit. And then he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but does not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself have not seen the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The first way that we develop a godly, loving heart is by humbly judging ourselves. 
humbly judging ourselves. We can't love other people with mercy if we don't see ourselves as one in need of mercy. If we lose sight that we too are sinners in need of God's mercy, we will stop loving the world and others with mercy. We will expect them to be where we think they ought to be. Unloving, merciless, or judgmental attitudes result from a self-righteous and spiritual blind perspective. That's where that comes from. We believe that we have arrived in a specific area and that we're less sinful than others and we're blind to our own sin. That's what allows us to have an unloving and merciless attitude or a judgmental attitude. Romans 12.3 says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We're not to think more of ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer adds, If my sinfulness appears to me in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. It's wonderful. You living a good life growing up in the church did not make you more redeemable and less of a miracle than Ted Bundy coming to Christ on death row. Each of our hearts were hardened. Every one of them. And it is only by God's grace that we now see and that we now hear. You see, God has called us into community for both the building up of one another This means that we need to hear from others regarding our sin. And so part of humbly judging our sin is being in community with one another. The worst thing for us is isolation. When we are isolated, people don't get to know us. They don't get to know what makes us tick. They don't get to actually see who we really are. Part of being in community is being known in totality of who we are, warts and all. What is the worst thing that can happen if somebody knows your deepest, darkest sin? If it is under the blood of Jesus, what's the worst thing that can happen? Somebody says something bad about you. They hate you. They curse you. They abuse you. They harm you. They take from you. Oh, wait a second. All of that happened to Jesus. So we become more like Jesus? Whoa. The exposure of my sin actually allows for more opportunity for me to become like Christ? Wow. That's a different perspective, isn't it? The sin that's been repented of and done with, exposed, actually gives greater opportunity for gospel work to be seen in my life? doesn't mean that we run around and shout from the rooftop everything. But it does mean that we need to be known. It does mean that if the worst came out, we look at it and say it's under the blood and it's been hung on the cross. And what the enemy means for harm, God means for good. But it requires being in community with one another. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. 
Have you been wounded by somebody who's told you something that you didn't want to hear? When somebody speaks into your life, sometimes it hurts. But we want to come with a humble posture. We want to come saying, listen, that guy might sound like a jerk, but I need to hear. I need to learn what he has to say. And often within Christ's church, what we find is it wasn't coming across from a position of a jerk. It's just that I didn't want to hear it. And so my own defense mechanisms got in the way. That's why the scripture says here in Proverbs, faithful are the, fr- the wounds of a friend. Who's spoken into your life and you just dismissed them and went about your business? But as you think back, you look at them and you know, that person loved Jesus. I know that. And I believe that person loved me too. I didn't feel it in the moment. But prior to that moment, I know they loved me. And I do know they love Jesus. I need to trust it. And I need to seek counsel. And I need to go to somebody else and say, do you think this is true? And hear it. A.W. Tozer points out, uncleanness with unawareness will have terrible consequences. That is what is wrong with the Christian church and with our Protestantism. Our problem is the depravity still found within the circle of the just, among those called to be saints, among those who claim to be great souls. So how do we humbly judge that? Well, we judge that in community, where we have brothers and sisters that speak into our life, and we judge it with the word. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed, the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's what the word of God does. So then we move into verse 43 and 44, and it says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. And then verse 45, it gives us that next piece, the way that we develop a godly, loving heart. It says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We need to examine and control our speech. Examine and control our speech. Our speech will tell us much of what we need to know. If what you're hearing come out of your mouth is negative and critical consistently, know that that's what's going on inside your heart. If you're finding yourself talking about others and it's constant, it's critical, and you look at it, this morning as I'm getting ready to to preach on Christ's loving mercy, I got up and I went down to go grab my car keys and my car keys were nowhere to be found. I need to be here at 7.30 and I'm running around the house, can't find my car keys. What I do know is that two of my children had my car keys yesterday and my wife, and my keys were not where they should have been. I ran around that house trying to find those keys, and I will say for myself I was fairly calm, but people knew I was on a mission at 7.30, and most of them had been asleep before I went on my mission. And so I start making calls in the house. Who's got my keys? Where are they? Whatever. And I won't admit 
tell you who it was, but it wasn't my wife who had the keys. And one of my children had the keys in bed with him. And so when I figure out where it's at, I'm like, hey, you need to get these keys down here. Like now, ASAP. And not only had this child taken my keys, but he had moved the cars around like a Tetris game. So my car was blocked in. So it meant moving vehicles on top of it. And now I'm very, very, very unhappy. And I get in the car, and what's going through my mind, and I'm not joking you, what's coming out of my mouth silently is curse words. And I'm mad. And I'm mad. And I'm driving, and I'm driving, and I'm like, this is what you're talking about. This is not a heart of loving mercy right now. You know what? And that could have been just as easily me. And so I picked up my phone. I called my child, talked about what I needed to see in the future, ever so calmly, and told him I loved him. We need to examine our speech, because our speech will tell us what's taking place in our heart, and we need to control our speech. When we see it, it is amazing what happens when we begin to control our speech, And so out of the abundance of our heart, our mouths speak. Listen to your words. They'll tell you everything you need to know about your heart. Listen to your words. Who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? And who are you loving or not loving? And then walk in the self-control of the Spirit. Because the first act of walking in righteousness begins when we start changing our speech. I change a curse word to a word of blessing. I change an opportunity of harm for prayer. You see the difference? Imagine what Jesus would be like if he dealt with every time we sinned and every time we disappointed him and every time we didn't meet the expectation he had set for us. Heaven would be a mess. Just from my life. Like one day. Right? Ephesians 4.25 says, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. One pastor put it this way, Where there's this discipline of the tongue is practiced right from the beginning, each individual will make a matchless discovery. He will be able to cease from constantly scrutinizing the other person, judging him, condemning him, putting him in his particular place where he can gain ascendancy over him, and thus doing violence to him as a person. Examine your speech. And then finally, as we wrap up, verse 46 through 49, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. 
We need to submit to Christ and his ways. Submit to Christ and his ways. You see, this particular passage is often divorced from the rest of the Beatitudes, and it's made to be something else, like build your house. What he's saying here is you cannot stand in the love and mercy of Jesus and love others as Jesus has loved us if you build your house on a false foundation. And he's saying that when you don't love others, it will bring ruin to you. He just says, out of the abundance of your mouth, right? Comes your, or abundance of your heart comes what you, your mouth, what you speak. And then he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? They're connected. They're tied together. What he's saying is this. If you're going to love as I have loved, you must build your foundation on me and submit to me and my ways. And although they may see counter to the culture, know that you are actually going to walk in the blessing that I have for you. That this is the blessed life. And you will not be moved when the storms come. You will still love others as Christ has loved us, even amidst the storms. You see, it is when we love Christ and we love others that we are able to be agents for Jesus. And my hope is that in this culture, which can be so hostile and which at times we buy into some of the lies of the culture, that we would be the agents for Jesus that are seen, not being locked up with the culture's ways, but actually seeing that our lives are to be completely countercultural, but are to be the blessed lives found in Jesus. And so may that be true for us this morning. May we be seen as a blessed people, and may we choose to live as a blessed people in the ways of God loving others the way that he has loved us through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can look at this word and this passage and this text. Thank you that we can be empowered through your spirit to love as you have loved us. Lord, our hope is not found in the things of this world, but it is found in you. May you grow in us a heart that is like yours. May you help us to love our enemies well and to be merciful towards one another. God, both within the community of the body of Christ here and out in the world, may the love that we have for one another as your church be known and seen within the world and may our love for the world, for those in it, be known. And we ask this in your name. Amen.